Good morning. Well, hey, what a wonderful morning so far. I might have the privilege of uh, concluding our three weeks in the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to read from the Bible. It should be on the screen behind. Um, if you'd have a Bible though in front of you, why don't you turn first and foremost to Luke chapter 6 and verses 17. And we're going to go from there, Luke 6, 17. And it says this. <clears throat> He went down with them, that's Jesus, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And then Mark chapter 6 so in Matthew chapter 6, we'll be in verse 5, it says this, and we've been camped in this for three weeks, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners and to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into a room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they will be heard because of their many for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We conclude our three weeks in the Lord's Prayer this morning by looking at, For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever you experience a moment, a beautiful moment, a moment of beauty, a wonderful vacation, a fantastic view, maybe you've just come back from one of those rare occasions where Bournemouth have won. What you want to do is you want to go and celebrate it, don't you, with people that you enjoy. And you do that by verbally summarizing the event, explaining what has happened. 
you consummate the event with a verbal praise. That's also known as a doxology. What we've listed up this part here, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory, is a doxology. It's a summary of, it's a praise of, it's a hymn towards what we've already been reading and studying over the last couple of weeks here in the Lord's Prayer. In summary, thine is the kingdom. Bournemouth, come on. You know, it's that side of thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, my experience in church life over 20 years is this. Often we can have conversations about uh, common matters, and we anticipate that the other person understands the very words we're talking about because they're that common, right? And so this morning, we're not going to do that. We're going to go at a nice, steady pace, and we're just going to ask ourselves three questions. What is meant by the kingdom? What does kingdom mean? What sort of power are we talking about? And what does glory mean in the text? Very simple. What do we mean by the kingdom? What sort of power are we talking about? And what does glory mean? Right, let's get stuck in with the first point. Thine is the kingdom, but what do we mean by that? Again, let's just go bare bones understanding of kingdom and kingdom language. You see, for a kingdom to be enforced, there needs to be three pillars, three basic things. You need to have a monarch or a ruler who governs. You need to have a people, people to be governed, people to be ruled. And you need to have a place, a geographical location where the governance or the rules can take place. It's that simple. And the word kingdom, actually, you would have seen it expressed in popular culture. The last kingdom, Aquaman and the lost kingdom. We've got the planet of the apes. Sorry, the kingdom of the planet of the apes. Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that we use often and time again. So when Jesus says, thine is the kingdom, what is he saying And when, he te- when he's teaching us how to pray? Well, like any great film series, you have to split it into three, unless it's Harry Potter. Then it's about 19 films. But we'll go with three for this morning. The kingdom can be broken down into three parts. You have the Old Testament, New Testament, and what's to come. Old Testament, part one. Whilst the term kingdom isn't used in the Old Testament, and just for sake of, without assuming it, what do we mean by Old Testament? The Old Testament is, the Bible, Bibliotech, is a collection of books. It's a library of books. 66 books written by different authors over a long period of time. The Old Testament are the books of the Bible written before Jesus' life. And what we see in the Old Testament in this collection of books is this theme of kingdom. The word isn't used that often, if at all, but you see the, word, the theme of kingdom. But what it's doing is like a, as a golden thread that's woven into the Old Testament. We have this, the books pointing towards a king that's going to come, a person that's going to come, someone that we're going to shout, yes, he's the person we're going to follow, he's our king. And they're pointing towards Jesus, Jesus to be the king that they're all anticipating and waiting for. And so what we see in the New Testament, part two, we see the promised king, Jesus, come. Suddenly the people have been waiting for this person, and here he is. But they're a bit shocked. They're a bit sad. They're a bit disappointed because the expression of the king in in the kingdom isn't perhaps what they initially anticipated or wanted. We know that uh, in the New Testament, we see the coming of the kingdom through Jesus. Um, It tells us, John the Baptist starts in Matthew chapter 3. He says, the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. The king is coming, John the Baptist says. Jesus even says of himself in John chapter 5, he says, you study the scriptures diligently. 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. You see, Jesus' preaching that we're reading here in Luke and in Matthew is him bringing about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom that's now coming and what it's going to look like. He then, at the end of his ministry, so Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he dies, he's resurrected, and then he ascends. At the end of his ministry, he says to the two people on the Emmaus Road, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe that all the, what all the prophets have spoken about. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And then hear this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, so beginning in the Old Testament, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus then ascends into heaven and he tells his disciples, go and tell the world. That's what we've witnessed this morning, haven't we? Megan, sorry, Megan. Morgan and Joel, definitely not Megan. <laughs> Morgan and Joel, people have told them. They've, they, have, they have been in spaces and areas and experienced witnesses of the kingdom who have told them about Jesus. And so they've confessed in their own lives that, Jesus, you're going to be the king. You're going to be the king. And then we have the third part, which is the second coming of Jesus. And this is when the Christian anticipates that one day Jesus will come again, and we will experience a perfect kingdom under the perfect king. And so what we have at this moment, we have this kind of tension, this dramatic tension, if you will, between the now and the not yet. You see, as Christians and as, as Morgan and Joel will experience, they're baptized today, but they're not going into a playground and going to be on a swing for the rest of their lives. They're going into a battleground because the world that we live in right now isn't fully complete. We still cry. We still experience pain. We still experience death and suffering and hurt because we're living in a kingdom now that isn't fully complete. There's an, but at the same time, we can experience joy and love. We can experience something of the kingdom that is to come in the now because Jesus Christ is present in us. And that's a wonderful thing. But we still hope, don't we, Christian? We hope for that day where there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more hurt. And so we anticipate that to come. So the Christian is living in the now and not yetness of the kingdom. But in the now... The Christian has some solid ground to stand on. Because the Christian recognizes, like we've seen this morning, that the way to the kingdom is through Christ. Because he is the king. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation, for hope, and for restoration. And the Christian can believe that whilst we are under Jesus King now, and experience some of his goodness... Goodness gracious, like a tap that can't turn off. We are looking forward to that day where we are flooded with his eternal goodness. One person put it this way, the kingdom is both a journey and it's a destination. It's both a rescue operation in this broken world and a perfect outcome in the new earth to come. It's both already started but not yet finished. So what is the kingdom? Jesus is the king. Who are the people the Christians are the people. And what's their geography? Well, it's partially here now, but we wait for a time where heaven and earth will form again. Thine is the kingdom. Gives it new meaning, right? Thine is the kingdom. But thine is the power too. What sort of power are we talking about here? What sort of power? 
Let's strip it right back again. Let's understand the word power. What does the word power mean? Well, the word power can be translated as might, strong ability, or administrative power. Now, let's confess, even the aged or mature in the room, pretty much a lot of us are living on a diet of Marvel and DC comic films, right? <laughs> yes, no. If you don't know who Thanos is yet, some might say you've never lived. And if you're looking at me confused, okay, we'll move on. When we think of power or supernatural power, we often think of laser eyes, don't we? The ability to fly, the ability to defeat the enemy by just flying through the spaceship, glowing in light. We've seen it all on television. But the power, see, and that's why the, the people of, who were waiting for the coming king were a little bit shocked. They were anticipating perhaps a new military might. But when Jesus came, he didn't bring that sort of power. It was something more subtle yet incisive. In Luke chapter 6 that we've just read, that is the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what he is talking about here is a new administrative power that's going to come in the kingdom of God. It's going to be a new revolution. It's going to be radical, but not as you know it. You see, when a boss takes over in a new job or a coach is appointed at a new, uh, for a new team, what happens is, like in a similar sense, they bring a new administrative power to that um, business or to that team or to that society. They're saying, we understand what's happened in the former, but we're going to build upon that and do it in a new way. This is a new administration. Jesus is no different when he brings about the kingdom. As the great leader, as the great boss, as the world's best ever coach, he says, that was the way for them. We're now going to build upon that and do things in a new way. Jesus is showing a new revolution. But it's not going to look like a world concert tour. He's not, he's not going to go all cold play on us and tour the world, but do it in an environmentally friendly way using all sorts of fuel. He's not, he's not a stadium arena tour. He isn't secretly rising an army like they do in the room of requirements, you know, with Harry Potter. You know, let's do it secretly. Let's rise an army because one day we're going to take on. The, no, 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 it's not that at all. Jesus isn't doing that. How does he do it? What's the new administrative power? I'm going to change the values of your heart. What? I'm going to change the central seats of your emotions, of your decision-making processes, so that you make different decisions in a different way. Look at here. It's in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says very quickly, he says, first of all, the current world value system is this, and this is what I want to change. He says uh, in verse 24, Woe to those who are rich now. That's the language of power. If your primary goal and value system in life is to seek power, to dominate others, people, woe to you, Jesus says. Woe to you who are well fed now. That's the language of material comfort. If all that you want in life is a comfortable life, to retire playing golf, whew, you know, five, six weeks a year in Florida, maybe a couple of skin. Just want to come to a life, just live for yourself. Woe to you. Woe to you who laugh now. That's the language of success. It's the sort of gloating laughter you have after, let's say, a political um, uh, team has won uh, uh, perhaps a vote, and they're laughing. Or like the guy did on TV this week, it was a, was it a, a game, a midweek game. He got a red card, and I think the Southampton player just, we laughed at him and waved him off. Did you see that? He gloated over him, see you later, red card, you're off. That sort of laughter. 
Uh, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And that's the language of recognition. If your primary goal is just to be recognized, to be known, woe to you. You see, Jesus is saying, if you, to be honest, if you're a non-Christian, it's your first time in church this morning, or if you've been here for many years and months, you acknowledge that that is the primary worldview of the world we live in, right? Recognition, power, success, comfortability. The world is caught up with it. And what's interesting about the world system, the world system, the world's values that Jesus reflects on, he, talk, he uses the word now. Woe to you who laugh now. It's now, it's now, it's now. Because what happens when you don't have an eternal perspective, that value system actually makes sense. It's not survival of the weakest, is it? Survival of the fittest, the strongest. Go out there and take land. If now is all that matters, then it makes absolutely sense to believe in those value, to believe in this value system and to build your life upon it. But what if there is an eternal world? Ask yourself that question. What if there is something greater? Because listen, you know it's true in your own heart. The stuff of this world fades away. Beauty, if you put your trust in your beauty, one day that will fade. If you put your trust in your successes, one day your records will be eclipsed and someone will be more successful than you. If you put your hope in acclaim and recognition, well, guess what, in 500 years, really? Is anyone going to be saying, Matthew Ashton? I very much doubt it. <laughs> if now is all that matters, then why not? But what Jesus says is this. If you put your trust in the stuff of now, if you're hungry now, you will be eternally, so if you're full now, you're going to be eternally hungry. If you seek recognition now, you're going to be eternally lonely. If now is all that you live for, then in the space of eternity, it may just be a different conclusion. But Jesus says in, Luke, in verses 20 to 23, here's a different way. Here's a radical way. Here's a revolutionary way that's going to change the world. Blessed are the spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor. That's the language of weakness. Bless, in other words, that's the language of those who are saying, I can't do this on my own. You know, we have a middle class spirituality in our Western world, don't we? which is, I'll meet you halfway, Lord. I do trust in you, but I'll put some effort towards it, and together I'll be saved. We might not say that out loud, but practically that's what we do. I felt it this week as I repented for something, suddenly realized I trusted in God more at that moment, realizing that before that, when I thought I was making good decisions, I said, don't worry, I'm okay. No, 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 it's not a middle class spiritual, it's not a middle classness in our in our uh, spirituality, there's a, it's, a, it's a poverty. We need him. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Blessed are those who hunger now. That's the language of sacrifice. Blessed are those who go without now to love and serve others, to sacrifice, to give to others. Blessed are those who weep now. That's the language of grief. You know, that's the language of, if you're a Christian this morning, you wear a little bit of your heart on your sleeve, don't you? I know this in my business world. The way I love others and serve others, and I know that they can respond in a different way that's going to be wounding. And that causes grief. Blessed are those who grieve now, who weep now. And blessed are those when people hate you, and that's the language of exclusion. Blessed are those when people hate you. Now, why are these values important? Because remember... 
In the kingdom language of now and not yet, the Christian believes that one day there will be a time when Jesus returns. So if we are grieving now, if we are, excuse me, if we are spiritually poor now, if we hunger now and weep now, then eternally we're going to be full. Eternally we'll be in perfect community. Eternally we'll be in his kingdom. And that is something to look forward to. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is not saying is that the Christians are to go and seek those things. You're not to go and seek poverty, spiritual. You're not to go and seek um, hunger. You're not to go and seek sacrifice. One person says it this way. He says, in the life of God's people, it will be seen first a remarkable reversal of values. God's people will prize what the world calls pitiable, and they will suspect what the world thinks desirable. They will prize what the world calls pitiable, and they will suspect what the world thinks desirable. You see, the Christian life is this great exchange. We don't want to desire the things of this world primarily. We want to suspect them. Because the world will tell you, look after who? Number two, number three, number four. Look after number. Don't know my truth, our truth. No, your truth. What makes a Christian a Christian is a remarkable reversal of values. You see, the power, the administrative power for the Christian is that you are no longer controlled by the values of the world. So you could be in a work situation, and if your boss requires you to lie or you're required to defend yourself, that means you have to lie about a matter. And if you lie, it means you might lose your job. Well, if you're in the kingdom of the world and your primary aim is comfortability, and lying means losing your job, and losing your jobs means that mortgage, and that mortgage means that wonderful house in Lower Parkstone, then you're going to lie. What's the problem? But if you're in God's kingdom, and you realize all that matters isn't the here and now in a comfortable life, but it's about doing things in the right way with integrity, worshiping your Father in heaven, then you'll tell the truth. Because you're not gripped and controlled by the powers of this world. You're transformed by the administrative power that is brought about by Christ. I'll just conclude on this point here because this is a, it's a hard concept. It's a, it's a difficult concept to, to, to understand. I get that. But it must be said that this administrative power isn't something you wake up in the morning, you, know, you put on your shoes, you, know, you do your hair, you open up your cup and go, yeah, I'll just put some admin power in my pocket you know, and we'll go on for the day. It's not, that sort of, it's not like that. Um, it's best helped by a guy called Paul who writes a, a letter in the New Testament. He says this. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the non-Christians the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. How can the Christian access his administrative power? By simply declaring that Jesus, you are Lord of my life, you're King of the kingdom, I love you. Do what Morgan and Joel have done this morning, get baptized, and then guess what? Christ dwells in you. 
It's the Christ in me which is the hope to live in this way. And what that does finally here is when Christ is in us to help us live that way, we have the power because when we gaze upon the cross of Christ, when we gaze upon the Easter event, we look at a man that although he was rich became poor for me. Although he was eternally full, he sacrificed himself on a cross for us. Although he was one with the Father, he excluded himself from the Father on the cross. And although he had joyous unity with the Father, he became a man of grief, a man of sorrows that I could be woven into the kingdom. To the degree that you can see that sort of Jesus, will you be able to access that administrative power in your day-to-day life? Our prayer for Joel and for Morgan is that they would know that power is real today for the rest of their life. But our prayer is for those who are mature in their Christianity that you would know that power for the rest of your life. Our prayer for those who are new this morning and have no faith in Jesus, that you would be willing to consider that power and to access it to change the course of your life. Now, can we trust what Jesus, can you trust what Jesus has said? Listen, this morning the message is not about that, it's about the message itself. Can we trust Jesus? How valid are these documents? You might, be ha- you might have those sort of questions. And if you do, great questions. We love them. But maybe you want to join us on Thursday night where we're going through a book called Confronting Jesus, where we sit down and we'll work through um, that together and have a good conversation and dialogue. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the power. Finally, then, thine is the glory. And we'll conclude on this point. What, how do we understand the word glory? Again, let's strip it right back. The, the word glory has some, has some interesting meanings. And it offers, uh, uh, it offers very obvious comedic, comedic value, uh, the meaning of this word. Because the word can be translated as heaviness or weightiness. The word can also be translated as splendor or wonderful. So the next time your partner asks, us, asks you, how do I look? You can say, you look glorious, darling. And they'll say, does that mean wonderful or splendor, or do you think I look heavy and weighty? (laughs) You look glorious, darling. You're blooming. (laughs) The word glory comes from, it means heaviness and weightiness. And so what's happening when he says, thine is the glory. You see, if we're living in a way where we believe we're in God's kingdom, if we're accessing his administrative power, then by definition we'll be making him most glorious in our life. What does that mean? If you were to take a rock and you were to drop it in a body of water, a lake or whatever, the rock is heavier than the water. So when you drop it, it makes a splash and then it ripples out. In essence, the rock is the most glorious thing in that story, in that context. When you take whatever it is, in this sense, let's say Jesus, as the heaviest thing in your life and you drop him into the center of your life, then the ripple effect of that are activities, decisions, thought processes, behaviors with Jesus in mind. Because he is the heaviest thing in your life. If recognition is the most glorious thing, if comfort is the most, if power is, then guess what? That will ripple out into your everyday consciousness, behaviors, and decisions that you make. Thine is the glory. What are we saying? Lord, would you be the heaviest thing in my life today? Would my decisions, would my thoughts be shaped ultimately by you? Please, 
be the heaviest thing. Now listen, we have to, you can't have two things at the throne, on the throne of your life. This idea of subjective truth, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, let's live together in harmony, but they both, that's, on, on, on some level we can do that with beauty, hopefully every partner has the most beautiful other partner, because it's subjective, right? Beauty can be subjective. But not when it comes to eternal matters. You cannot have both God as the heaviest thing in your life as well as the values of the world. It's either one or the other. One is ultimately rippling into all of your decision-making processes. Which one is it going to be? Which one is it going to be? Can I ask you to consider? Consider if your value system is of this world. Ask yourself, am I really satisfied? Am I really rested? Am I really joyful? And if you're not, be honest with yourself. Maybe consider another way. Keith Green, um, aged 11, was a child prodigy. He was signed by Decor. Decca Records in 1965 at the age of 11 on a five-year deal to write songs and sing songs. He's going to be the next superstar. Unfortunately, he was overshadowed by Donny Osmond as he captured the hearts of teens across America and across the world. Maybe there are some Osmonds in the house today. Um, as with all things, when everyone starts off on a very on a, on a projected path of success and it doesn't materialize, you then go and find meaning in other things, don't you? And Keith Green was no different, getting lost in the early 70s and the kind of psychedelic movement of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, but one day he picked up the New Testament and he started reading the Gospels. And the Holy Spirit gripped his heart and he had this no compromise way about him. He started to love people with kingdom values, nothing grand. He opened up his house. He kept opening up his house, him and Melody Green, to people on their street in San Francisco. Their house got full, so they bought the house next door. That house got full. They ended up buying and renting seven properties on their street. They called it the greenhouse, where people would come and they would grow spiritually and they would be fed. It was nothing miraculous. He was just loving people, transformed by the kingdom values. He ended up buying a 140-acre plot, and they created something called Last Days Ministries, where uh, his wife, Melody Green, would go on to continue to run, because tragically, at the age of 28, Keith Green passed away in a plane crash. And in his, uh, as part of his songwriting, I'm going to conclude with this, he wrote a song when he reflected back on the moment that he gave his life to Jesus, when, the, when he allowed the power of Christ to come into his heart, and he says this, like a foolish dreamer trying to build a highway to the sky, all my hopes would come tumbling down, and I never knew just why, until today. When you pulled away the clouds that hung like curtains on my eyes, well, I've been blind all these years, all these wasted years, and I thought I was so wise. But then you took me by surprise, like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed, until your love broke through. I've been lost in a fantasy that blinded me until your love broke through. All my life I've been searching for that crazy missing part and with one touch you just rolled away the stone that held my heart. 
And now I see that the answer is this. It's just as easy as asking you in. And I'm sure I could never doubt your gentle touch again. It's like the power of the wind. Amen. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that through Christ, the King of the kingdom, we have access to this wonderful power to live life differently, to be full of, to be full of the values of the kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that by ourselves we know that we fall short, but your gracious, abounding love, your forgiving love, your compassionate love, your patient love is with us daily. Father, I pray for people here this morning, perhaps if their first time in a church building, we want to pray just that you would stir up in the heart a questioning, is there another way? Father, we pray for the Christian in the room, there would be a fresh look at this revolutionary way of life, and we pray that today would be a new mark in the sand. Today, on this day, we say, thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.